Well, this morning we are starting a new series, and this uh, series kind of tiptoes through, I got to get used to using a clicker again. I was three slides behind, you didn't tell me. (laughs) And so uh, we are uh, entering a new season that is going to tiptoe through the letter of Colossians. And I say tiptoe because even though Colossians is a short book, it is a rich book. There is lots of stuff in it. And I, in no way in six weeks can we explore the full depth of what is in there, which is kind of funny because the book of Colossians, when it was received, the letter of Colossians, it was uh, read by an orator in front of the church in its entirety, and then it would have been talked about. It might have even been read multiple times in multiple languages. And so there's a, another spin on sermon for you. Just think about it. We break up Colossians over six weeks and say, man, we're still not getting to the richness. And Paul's letter would have been read in one sitting and, and then talked about. Colossians, oh, during these next few weeks, you're going to hear me invite you to study Colossians together. In fact, this week, for those of you who use the Bible app, how many people would use the YouVersion Bible app? That's from Life Church, right? It's the most popular one on Facebook. If you would go into that and search for reading, um, what do they call it, reading plans? Is that right, Tracy? You can find one from InterVarsity on Colossians. And I would encourage you to study through that. And as things kind of come up to you, reach out to me, and I'm going to be studying through that one as well. Colossians is a book that is often preached from. In fact, for many churches, it is a main course of study. I heard a pastor one time say, why does that other church always seem to preach on Colossians? As if that was the only thing that they knew how to preach on. And you may be very familiar with the book of Colossians, right? There's many passages in it that will stand out to you like, oh, I know this one really good. So why study a book that we know so well? easy. There's just so much to it, so much more than we realize. I think that we can never put ourselves into any scripture too much. In fact, to a fault, we almost put ourselves in scripture too little throughout the weeks. This is an important letter from Paul. One theologian says, Colossians is the shortest letter from Paul's letters, but it's also one of the most exciting. He's writing to a young church discovering what it was like to believe in Jesus and to follow him. Paul shares their sense of wonder as he encourages them to explore the treasures of the gospel and live their lives accordingly. I love this line. This line, it says, Paul is writing to a church that is discovering what it is to learn to live in love like Jesus and encouraging their sense of wonder. As we move through this series, I encourage you to look at Colossians with a sense of wonder, that it's not this return to a right belief of orthodoxy, but it's actually an encouragement to grow as a person. In fact, uh, Warren Wearsby says that this is one of the most profound letters that Paul ever wrote, in which he says, one that I always approach with fear and trembling. Another points out this letter should always be read out loud, that it should be processed in community just as it was when it was first read. 
We cannot study all of Colossians in six weeks. And this letter, uh, even though it would have been read in its entire setting, uh, there's just six things that I want us to explore in this thing. And I'm calling them six postures. And you might say, out of all the book of Colossians, why are we just focusing on these six things? Well, as I looked at the book of Colossians, as I considered what we might study from it, and as I looked at the calendar, realizing that from this day, including this day, that there's only six days left that I, rem- I mean, six days, six weeks left that I remain as preaching pastor here, I realized that if Paul looked at these six postures as what he wanted to leave the church in Colossae with, then in many ways, if I was leaving a departing message with what remains for me, I think that these six postures, which appear in Paul's letter to the church in Colossae, are what I want to remain after I'm gone. We'll be studying the book in Colossians for six Sundays. You see that this week we're going to be looking at a passage that says we need to keep rooted Next week, keep adjusting, and then keep dressing, keep working, keep praying, and keep aware. These are the six charges that Paul gives to the Colossian church. And they're the same six charges or encouragements that I want to leave you with as I begin to transition and delegate responsibility to the bridge team. Now, the Colossian church is an interesting one. Does anyone know anything about it? Shout out. What do you know about it? I mean, don't shout out. I don't want your big, large droplets up here, but what do you know about it? What do you know about the church in Colossae? Well, I will tell you a little bit about it because I think the context helps. The church in Colossae, it's not surprising you don't know much about it because, to be fair, it's not a really uh, important church in the eyes of things that we often call important. Paul writes to church in Rome. Rome is the capital of an empire, right? Paul writes to a church in Galatia, and they're a center, a hot spot of trade. Uh, Corinthians, the center of art and finances, right? Uh, Colossians, it's a small town. In fact, uh, it would be comparable to us living in East Petersburg. It's a small church in a small town without a lot around it. Now, there's sister cities around it, and, and they have trade, they have arts, they have theater, but Colossae itself is not much more than a normal neighborhood church. By the time that Paul is writing this church, a church is probably about five years old. It has been a church plan. It has been well established by this point. Uh, it was not planted by Paul. So we have two churches in the New Testament that Paul did not plant, the church in Rome and the church in Colossae. In fact, how Colossae got its start is that while Paul was in Ephesus, he began to rent a place called the Hall of Trinius, and from there he sends out many leaders, Timothy, Titus, and a whole bunch of other guys that I'm not even going to pretend that I can pronounce their names, right? And, and, and he just continues to send these leaders out. Well, there... Two people from Colossae show up, and they go through training. Philemon, he's one of them, right? He gets a letter in the book. And this guy, we're going to call E for today. That's his street name, E, because I am not really good at pronouncing his name. But uh, 
these two are the evangelistic type. They've been charged by Paul. They've, they've witnessed the miracles and the teaching of Paul. And they go back and they plant healthy churches in these towns. In fact, in many ways, they've then began to trish, transition out. And we've talked about how we are a church in transition. And in many ways, the church in Colossae is also a church in transition. It's a church that is uh, letting go of its founding fathers who were very apostle-like in their planning of it, and it's beginning its second wave of pastors. And Paul looks at what's happening in the cultural context of his day, and that's his transition, and he realizes something, that this church needs great encouragement. The one thing that is happening in this town, in the town of Colossae, that brings Paul great concern is the idea of syncretism. Has anyone ever heard that word before, syncretism? So syncretism is a, a combination. Here, I'll read you the, dic the dictionaries. It's a combination of different religions, cultures, and schools of thought. I like to call it the McDonald's version of your faith. You get to say, I want a number one with a side of number two, and uh, throw that number three in there too. It is looking at the ideologies, the philosophies, the teaching of your day, and cherry-picking what you think will work well. Now, I told you Colossae is not an important city, but there's one thing that Colossae does serve well. It's a stopover town in between the east and the west. And what happens because of that is that there are a lot of traders, a lot of travelers. And when they come, they bring the philosophies, the ideologies, the religions, the teachings, the influences of the East and the West. At this time, the West is developing uh, a really an empire way of thinking. And the West, I said that wrong, the West is developing a, a, an empire way of thinking, a very political charged society. And the East is developing what we now know as Buddhism and things like that. It's this, this growth of philosophy or Eastern train of thought. And so the Roman Empire was fine with all this. They allowed whatever religions that you wanted to follow into the empire, as long as your religion still acknowledged that Caesar or whoever was in control of Rome is Lord. And that he's Lord above all. So it was a deeply political time. It was kind of divided. There was a much louder uh, time of politics. Times that people were louder with their politics than their religion. Not much different uh, than today. And the Colossian church begins to be influenced by the outside world. In fact, as the original leaders let go, they begin to find themselves culturally influenced in ways that they shouldn't be. And what developed was this weird combination, most scholars say, of Eastern thought and Jewish legalism. Now, isn't that weird? Let's just think about that. So they had to be circumcised. They had to follow certain rules. But there was also this secret journey or inner path that would bring you to great enlightenment. And that right there would bring you into a way of living that was better than any else. That's what's influencing the church. In fact, just a little bit later, Paul's going to say, such regulations like this have with them the appearance of wisdom. They have self-imposed worship, false humility, 
and a harsh treatment of the body. But at the end of the day, they lack any value. You see, the church was beginning to develop certain diets, certain disciplines that actually were not rooted in any way in the teaching of Jesus, but rather through uh, ways of the world, through the influence of other ideologies. You know, we're not much different in today's time. If you think about it, uh, last year I received over 20 phone calls, I estimate, from one company trying to sell me that the Daniel fast was the most biblical way to live. Now, anytime you say something like that about a diet or a discipline, you are kind of in trip-trapping or flip-flopping or tiptoeing into uh, this same kind of idea of syncretism, where you legalistically find one secret way. The other word for that throughout biblical history has been called Gnosticism, where you can earn your way through great thinking and to take hold of your own destiny. As Paul looks at this, as we look at this, as our culture uh, has combined many religions, convictions, ideas in pursuit of the best way of living, it's important to remember, too, that when Paul wrote Colossians, he's in a really cool place called jail. Now think about that. Paul writes a letter to the church in Colossians to encourage them. In fact, 15 times in the letter, he tells them he is thankful for them. Actually, over 15 times. Paul's in jail in the worst possible state. He is awaiting uh, arraignment and, and consequence. In no way is this a glory life. And he spends time overflowing with gratitude for a church that he didn't plant that's on the other side of the world from where he is. Now, could you imagine what they would have felt like as they got this letter? I mean, Paul's in jail. The only thing that he should have on his mind is survival. And he took his time to encourage us, to thank us for what he is doing. In fact, as Paul writes this letter, he's doing it in an interesting way. He's addressing this syncretism by teaching encouragement. As one person writes, the church, which is very young in the faith, needs to be strengthened, informed about what has happened to its members as they've become Christians. They need taught how to pursue Christian maturity. And I want you to remember that line, and warned against the threat that was most dangerous for those who especially were coming from a paganistic background. Now, paganism is a funny word. We tend to think of it as those weird people that live in the woods in the time of, of England, and, and they were just devil worshipers. But literally, pagan is just somebody who is not Jewish or Christian now. And so, uh, in many ways, the culture, the world that we live in is a pagan culture. It is not a Christian culture. We live in a culture that has been far removed from uh, any Christian sort of uh, kingdom sense. And so we have been more influenced by a paganistic culture just like the church in Colossae. Let me just say this before we open the scriptures. Warren Wearsby, in introducing this book, tells a story of a pastor who gets called into court. And that pastor has to play witness to uh, something that has happened in their neighborhood with a shady business deal that has affected the neighborhood negatively. And as he gives his account, the prosecutor who tries to get under the pastor's skin 
says, doesn't pastor mean shepherd? And the pastor replies, yes, that's, that's right. And the, and the attorney, the prosecutor says, then why are you not back with your church? Why are you here in court? Why are you not just caring and visiting your sheep? And the pastor, quick on his toes, replied, because today I'm fighting the wolves. Because today I'm fighting the wolves. Pastoring, serving in the church is so much more than pastoral care and visitation. In many ways, it is a time to also live into prophetic leadership and prophetic gifting. And Paul, in this letter, is fighting the wolves. Wolves that have worked their way into the church with syncretism and moved past. He wants to stand in the way, and I want to stand in the way of any place that culture longs to combine your faith with any other influence than Jesus. Paul knew that in the Christian life, we will either stand still, I mean, we will never stand still, we'll either go forward or we will slowly slip backwards. We all desire to move forward. But the truth is, most of us, when we accomplish the place that we call rooted, we begin to slip backwards. This morning, we're going to be in Colossians 2, 6 through 7. I'm going to read for that read from that now. And I would love to have it on a screen, but I don't think it's going to load well for us today. Colossians 2, 6 through 7, just two verses. It's into this culture, this, this time in which is uh, quickly becoming synchronized that Paul writes this. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than Christ. Now, this is a passage that many of us probably know. We've heard it uh, many times. It's probably very familiar to us. Something that kind of came to my mind as I was reading this passage this week is there was a few weekends ago we were kayaking. It's something we've been trying to do every weekend uh, to to relax, to enjoy uh, the sun, to enjoy time together as a family. And somehow the uh, valve where I can close and, and drain water out, that, that was not fully closed. And so here I'm sitting on my kayak with Emily, and, and we're out, and we're on the Northeast River, and the waves are kind of cool that day, and we're riding over them. And slowly, after about three hours of kayaking, I realized that my boat is getting a little heavy. It's getting a little sluggish. It's not as buoyant as it once was. It's, it's beginning to slow down. Well, as the kids got tired and we finally pulled into shore, Katie said, it doesn't look like you're floating right anymore. And, and as I get up and I lift my boat up, I realize the valve is open and a river, I think I drank most of that river into my boat, just came pouring out for what felt like hours. I had started out with great energy. I was out, but as the boat became heavier, I wasn't even aware 
that I was taking on water, right? The, as the waves kind of crashed around us. And, and I became sluggish. I became tired. As Paul looks at the church in Colossae, he realizes they're taking water on. They're not aware of it. Their, their valve has a hole in it. The, it's not fully shut. And what is coming on board is dangerous. It is slowing them down and making them sluggish. Now, the danger of that is that you're not going to progress very fast, right? You're not going to possibly reach, or it could be like what used to happen. We'd go to Circle K camp growing up, and, and that's when we used to go kayaking. There was always the people that would pretend to swim underwater and dump your canoe and, and you in it so that you had to pull back to shore a kayak, I mean, a canoe that did not have sealed bulkheads, and so it would be under the water, and we'd have to drag it back to shore, right? That's the danger the church is in if they continue at this pace. And Paul wants to encourage them to keep rooted in a way that keeps them buoyant, that keeps them established in Jesus alone. Listen to this passage again. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, Continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him. Strengthened in the faith you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of the world rather than Christ. Rooted, established, built up. These are important words. In fact, in the NIV here, it says... Uh, continue to live your lives in him. How many people are reading from the King James? It says walk there, right? Do you see walk there? It says continue to walk your lives with him. So does the NSA, NASB and, all, and some of the others. And actually the word there, to live your life in him, is a word that actually means to be on pilgrimage. To be on pilgrimage. So when you see that, live your lives in him, yeah, it means I'm a Christian, I've accepted Jesus. No, no, no. That means to be on pilgrimage with Jesus. That's just an interesting concept, right? To, to be, if, if we were to define it, it means to be overwhelmed or to be occupied with the experience. To be overwhelmed or occupied with the experience. Paul actually uses this a lot. He uses it in Colossians 1.10, 4.5. He uses it seven times in Ephesians. It's one of his favorite kind of uh, analogies. Why do we continue to walk in a way that is on pilgrimage, right, that is overwhelmed or completely occupied with the experience? Well, he says it right there, as you were instructed to, right? He's sent a letter encouraging them uh, because he knows this church plant was planted by somebody that was influenced by him. They've now moved on, and he says, you guys have been instructed. You know what it means, right? Stay on pilgrimage with him. Now, what's this look like? What's it look like for you to be on pilgrimage? It would be a fun question to ask. If we could, maybe we could set them in a circle sometime and say, hey, what does it mean for you to be on pilgrimage? It means thinking about the adventure like it was the first time. Never growing tired. When we think of people who are on pilgrimage, who do walkabouts, who cross journey to find themselves, who hitchhike across the country, you're overwhelmed. You're captivated by the experience. 
And then Paul tells them that they should be rooted. And that word simply means to be rooted, right? To be grounded with roots. There's nothing uh, unusual about that. The last one was an active, an adverb. This one is simply uh, an agricultural term, one that they would have known well. Why do you stay rooted? Because you were instructed to. What, what is the, the outcome of staying rooted? And same with walking, that you will overflow with gratitude. Now, rooting is an interesting concept, because what's that look like, right? Well, it means that I know Jesus, and as long as I keep my roots down on the ground, nothing will go wrong. If that's what that means, then uh, you've never walked by a riverbank or a creek bed or the Chesapeake Bay very often. What happens along a riverbank? What happens to the roots along the riverbanks? When a tree stops growing, when it stops reestablishing itself, when it stops on pilgrimage, it, roots don't grow anymore, eventually as the riverbank, as the creek bed, as the Chesapeake Bay moves closer through erosion of the world around that tree, the roots become exposed. And some trees, like the river birch, have an amazing way of growing backwards and growing back in and holding themselves on. In fact, often you'll see a river birch hanging over the water and you can almost walk out on it. It's one of my favorite things to do. Rooted does not mean that you put your roots down, I'm established, and I never stop growing. In fact, the word that Paul uses for rooted here is one that says to be kind of tied into the past, but also growing. And in fact, it's an eschatological word. It means that it's, it's a word about the end of time. So it is a word that is both descriptive and also prescriptive. Or it is a word that is past and present. It's a word that means that you are to stay rooted. That means to have your foundations, your roots, into who Jesus is, but still grow on. Again, the same idea that we see with pilgrimage. It means that we are to uh, continue to grow down and out, to become even more rooted in Jesus than we think is possible right now through our awareness. In fact, roots really define who and what we are. If a tree has unhealthy roots, it may stay green and pretty for a little bit, but when quick time, things will begin to wither and fall apart. And if those roots become sick and new ones don't get developed or addressed, right, what happens is eventually the whole tree suffers. Roots are roots of our faith. The, the areas, the wants and the desires of our lives are the roots. And it has everything to do with how we will live and become as Christians. And then Paul says this word, to be built up. It's an architectural term. It means to edify. Why do we want to be built up? Because you were instructed by Euphrates, right? To overflow with thanks. So he's addressed the agricultural crew, the spiritual direction crew, and now he's talking to those who understand architectural types. They need to be built up, that they need to have their foundations. But there's another part to this. Build up is more than just an architectural word. It actually means to continue to be built up. And, and in this way, what he's saying is continue to submit yourself to learning, right? Don't, don't arrive in your faith. Continue growing. Continue building to the building, right? Add another shed on. Add another uh, dining room on. Continue to learn. 
And then Paul uses the word established. And that means to make stable. Why do we want to make ourselves unstable? Because you were instructed to. That's where your roots are. It's so you can overflow with thanks, like Paul is doing right now. And we make stable by not tipping the canoe, right? Or not taking other things on. And that's what this verse is about. That if you are established, you'll be aware. Established and aware are really tied in together here. And what it means is that you're going to be aware of what you're taking on into your kayak or into your travels much more. Now, I love this language that Paul writes, overflowing with things. And the image that is incorporated in that word is that the riverbank can hold no more water, that it's pouring out. This is why he wants them to be built up, to be walking on pilgrimage, to be rooted, to be established, so they can overflow with gratitude. Why? Because a grounded, growing, and grateful believer would never be led astray or slowed down. And why, Paul says, because see that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world. Now, the NIV does an injustice here because it actually combines two of uh, Paul's ideas. There is no word that says deceptive philosophy. It actually says, so you don't give in to deception and philosophy. But the NIV puts them together there, and the King James still keeps them separate. The idea here is that the world is longing to take you captive. And I love that image. I think the King James says spoil or seduce, and it can mean all those things, but it actually means to be captivated. Pilgrimage means that you are fully aware, you are fully captive to the experience of following Jesus. And why do you want to be that? Because you don't want to be fully captive to the world and what the world offers. Philosophy is this zeal of science, right? It's this humanistic way of thinking. In many ways, there's still uh, Eastern influence on us. Mennonite people as a whole have tiptoed around us with our own mysticism and, and powwows and voodoos and magic, right? And water witching. All those things tiptoe into a spiritual world that we take on and have effects of taking on for generations that we are not always aware. We must be aware of what we are becoming captivated with. The word deception there can also mean vain deceit or disillusion. It means to, to have things combined to where you don't even know what is at what anymore or what source you are drinking from. It means to actually only drink from one worldview. And we're all guilty of this. We all have our favorite news station. We all have our favorite theologians. We all have our favorite ways of thinking. And we use sources to back up those things. Right? Let's look at today's time. Politics on race, politics on masks, politics on immigration. We use the facts that we like to back them up. That's falling into a very dangerous territory of legalism where Paul's saying, hey guys, you need to drink and find what's true. Then he tells them to be careful of tradition. Tradition is an expectation of how and not why. We must always be driven by the why. Lastly, he mentions this elementary principles of the world. This 
directively kind of translated. It sounds really weird, but it literally means by your desire to control your own destiny. Working for the weekend. Working on that diet so you can reach a certain thing. Trying to control your destiny by positive thinking rather than finding what for God wants for you in the moment. These things are elementary principles of the world in which we must be careful with. Paul knew we become what we are, and we will become what our roots are. How are your roots growing? And what kind of soil are they growing into? How are you increasing, not just reinforcing your focus and growth in the faith, How do you increase your knowledge, the experience of the power in your lives? William Barclay writes, the true church, listen to this, the true church must have the power to resist seductive teaching. Must have the power to resist seductive teaching. But it does not mean a frozen orthodoxy in which all adventure of thought is heresy. See, when we freeze our orthodoxy, when we say, this is it, this is what I believe, we end up getting stuck and not able to grow our roots down deeper into Jesus. Paul knew if they didn't stay well-established, way-rooted, the canoe would tip and syncretism would hurt the church. This week I invite you to think about what ideologies are you allowing to shape you and maybe shape you more than your faith actually is. We are living in a time of competing ideas, of self-helps and self-pursuits. My challenge to you is to keep rooted in the gospel, into God's goodness and good news. Don't fall victim to political parties and trendy ideologies. I invite you to stand as I read Paul's words one more time, and I read them as a charge to you this time from the message. My counsel for you is simple and straightforward. Go ahead with what you've been given. You've received Christ Jesus the Master. Now live for Him. You're deeply rooted in Him. You know your way around the faith. Now do what you've been taught. School's out. Don't just study the subject. Live it. And let your living spill out into thanksgiving. Like Paul to the Colossian church, encourage one another. As Paul encouraged the church in a way that transformation took place in their lives and actually in the small town of Colossae. Be so rooted and continually growing in new ways in Jesus that it overflows with gratitude for what is before you and speaks to a world that is watching our every move right now.